everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Alinda Moyd, who has spent a few decades as a public defender and is also now at Howard University. Welcome to our show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, so maybe just as background, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I am a native Baltimorean, born and raised in Baltimore, and um, decided through the influence of a uh, teacher in undergrad to go to law school. Um, I attended the Ohio State University <laughs> uh, School of Law. And um, one of the first jobs that I had after law school was to work with the NAACP, the national office, when they moved uh, part of the office from New York to Baltimore. And it was at that time that I began to um, receive information, letters from uh, men and women who were behind bars uh, throughout uh, the U.S. in prisons and jails, um, even though we worked on employment discrimination, housing discrimination, a wide variety of civil rights matters at the NAACP office, I was the one who was designated to answer prison mail as the uh, paralegal uh, working in the office. And so it was then that I began to see through the um, lens of the men and women who wrote us uh, what was happening behind bars. I then left the NAACP and went to work with the ACLU National Prison Project. And so it was there that I then got an opportunity not just to see what was going on uh, behind bars, uh, but also to do something about it. And we probably sued every state in the union regarding their uh, maltreatment of um, men and women who were uh, in custody and their constitutional uh, violations um, regarding their treatment. I stayed there for three and a half years and then went to work with the DC Public Defender Service. Um, at the time that I was hired, we had a prisoner's rights office. And so we uh, were located inside uh, one of the local uh, prisons that was right outside of DC. Um, we catered to the needs that men and women had behind bars. We filed individual actions as well as 
uh, class action lawsuits. We also represented uh, men and women who were uh, facing disciplinary infractions inside the institution. So we also did, did those administrative hearings. Uh, a few years after doing that, somewhere around six, uh, six years in, the agency, the Public Defender Service, decided that we would focus on representing men and women at parole hearings, parole revocation hearings. So for most of the time that I was at the DC Public Defender Service, um, I spent that time um, representing men and women who were facing revocation of their parole or supervised release before the US Parole Commission, because there's not a local parole board in the district. Um, those cases were heard before the um, US Parole Commission. And so I stayed at the Public Defender Service for 30 years. And um, it was after that time that I was um, approached by a professor at Howard's Law School uh, who asked me if I would be interested in, in teaching uh, the reentry clinic. And I've done that for the last uh, two years. So my, um, you know, experience is, is kind of, you know, all over the place in terms of individual representation, as well as class action representation, and now um, teaching. So what, what's interesting, um, you know, kind of reading some of your writing and, and some other things is um, the focus on parole, I think, is um, unique, and I don't think a lot of people think about um, how important um, a function uh, parole revocation actually is in terms of uh, mass incarceration. Um, and so how did you get into that specific subfield? Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. Um, we focus a lot on the fact that 2.3, and I understand that it's probably down to 2.2 million people are behind bars in this country. Um, but we don't focus on the fact that we've also got 5 million people who are on probation, parole, or supervised release. Um, and the fact that any minor violation can just land a person uh, back in jail. So when we look at um, the intakes in the different courts that happen like on a regular basis, a large number of the people who are presented to court and then sent to jail or prison are individuals who are on parole or supervised release. Um, unfortunately, uh, most, in most jurisdictions, the number of people who are sent back to jail for violations are not sent back to jail for committing new crimes. Um, certainly they would have you think otherwise, right? That the number of people who are uh, violated are violated because they're committing new crimes and that the crimes in our community are being committed by people who are on parole or supervised release. When the reality is, uh, more than half of the individuals, and, and it's different in different jurisdictions. In DC, it's more than 60 to 70% of the individuals who are violated are violated for technical violations. That means not reporting to a parole officer or missing a meeting 
or not going to a program or um, failing a drug test, you know, suffering with, a, with addiction or not going to your mental health provider. Um, so those are, are some of the reasons why, again, folks land themselves back in jail. And it, it, it is a forgotten practice, right? We don't talk about that much. We don't talk about the um, repressive state that's created by having millions of people on surveillance, on under uh, supervision uh, in the community, but still um, under surveillance. And um, you will note that in my article, I uh, state that it's akin to uh, the time when after um, <laughs> the Civil War, uh, when formerly enslaved people had to walk around with their papers to show that they were legitimate in the community, right? I hear clients now talk about being on papers, um, you know, um, having to um, show that you are um, legitimate, rightfully so, in the community. And I've covered um, a number of uh, parole issues where people commit very minor technical violations. And one guy I worked with, he, he ended up uh, sentenced um, spending three more years in prison for a technical violation. He gets out and, uh, and they start doing it again. And this time he was smart. He got uh, an aggressive lawyer and he ended up beating it. But uh, so many people end up back in prison uh, uh, when they haven't committed a new crime. I think one of the issues and I, uh, that, that you raise is that because these are technical violations, um, the, this creates a huge amount of discretion on the part of uh, the agencies that are in charge of this. And, and so that helps to create a huge racial disparity in terms of who ends up uh, being recommitted uh, based on a technical violation. That's, that's absolutely correct. And when we look at who the decision makers are in most jurisdictions, they are not people that come from the community. Um, most of them have law enforcement backgrounds. Most of them, many of them have been parole officers. And so um, they bring with them the biases and the uh, philosophy of running uh, these parole boards like um, a person who, again, uh, comes from that background. And there's another aspect to this. You, uh, you write in one of your uh, essays, uh, parole boards are fragmented institutions that operate in fear of releasing the wrong person. And so they end up erring on the other extreme and deny release to people that really do deserve a second chance. Uh, what do you see as the implications for that? So um, I, I think we see that on so many levels, right? We see the, and as a person who practiced in this field for many years, it's, it was routine that I would hear parole officers say, I am going to request a warrant. I'm going to write you up and request a warrant because you're not going to see my name in the paper. 
we would hear that like all the time. I am not going to be the person blamed for releasing the wrong person or releasing someone who might do something in the community. The problem with that, if you operate from that mindset is um, it impacts decisions all throughout the parole process, right? So we're not just um, denying parole to people who should be granted parole and released to the community. Many of them after serving decades, many, many years in prison. It also shows up on, in the revocation context, right? So we have a person who is facing revocation for a minor offense or minor violation and that decision-making um, mentality creeps in. But also we're seeing it at the tail end where a person is supposed to be, have their parole or supervised release terminated or ended. And we see that folks are still being kept on parole or supervised release much longer than, than they should be. And so we see this, um, this, this philosophy, this mentality creeping into the process on so many levels. Yeah, and it's really interesting because last week I interviewed Dan Cannon and we were looking at, at, at a completely different issue, but he called this the Peter Parker uh, syndrome because uh, what what happens is, and the analogy is from Spider Man, right? Where um, Peter Parker, um, you know, uh, is upset and ends up uh, not stopping this thief that uh, ends up uh, fleeing the scene and basically says, "Hey, it's not my problem." And then the thief ends up being the one that that kills his uh, mm. uh, uncle. And um, you know, the lesson there is that you want to avoid releasing the person that does the bad deed. And, you know, he used the example of Willie Horton and pointed out that, you know, the Massachusetts furlough program had an extraordinarily good record. And, right. and Willie Horton was actually one of only two people that actually committed a crime, but because it got all the attention, it, it blew up the whole program. And it seems like the entire criminal legal system is, is scared to death of the Willie Horton or the exemplar, uh, you know, out here in uh, San Francisco. It's Troy McAllister that's uh, uh, leading uh, Chase Bodine, the San Francisco DA, to a possible recall because he released the wrong person. Yeah. Yeah. We see that all the time. Unfortunately, we never hear about the success stories. Right. We never hear about the many, many individuals who are released on parole and just do wonderful things in the community. Um, in the state of Maryland, um, there was a decision that was made um, regarding the release of folks after they've uh, served a certain time. Um, and it came about because they found out that improper jury instructions were given to um, many people who were sentenced during this certain time period. And so they uh, began to release many of the individuals who were sentenced to life, to serve life sentences, who had been in custody for 30, 40 years. 
um, they're, they're called the Unger, the Unger uh, people released un, um, as a result of the Unger decision. And there have been reports done by the Justice Policy Institute that talks about the wonderful things that this population is doing in the community. The low recidivism rate, I think some something like maybe two of the 190, 191 individuals who were released under, uh, under the Unger decision have been returned to prison. But we don't hear about the success stories. We hear about the, the one or two failures that happen and that guides how decisions are made. And that should not be the case. Um, and then there's another issue that you raise, which I think is a problem throughout the system as well. It's this notion of risk assessment. And we have this idea that we can properly assess risk, but uh, introducing risk assessment also introduces inherent biases, right? Absolutely. And there are um, experts that talk about, you know, whether we should do away with the risk assessment. And if we do away with the risk assessment, how do we get decision makers to, to make decisions that are uh, objective, right? Like fair and just and, and void of any kind of internal uh, inherent bias. Um, but we look at these, when we look at the risk assessments, no matter where they're used, they're used several times throughout the criminal legal process. I don't call it the criminal justice process, um, but throughout the criminal legal process, the risk assessments are used to determine whether a person should be released pre-trial, to determine uh, what level of supervision a person should get, to determine even in the institution what security level a person should be placed on. We use these risk assessments throughout the entire process. Um, but yes, um, these risk assessments have, have issues, they have problems. Um, how do we capture by throwing into this magical formula um, everything about a person, right? Like, um, how do we capture how much danger I might pose into the, to the community by throwing in factors like um, my race, my age, like those things about me that I can never change, right? The experts talk about um, dynamic versus static factors. Those static factors are things about me that I can never change. I can never change my age. I cannot change my, my race. I can't change how many times I have been arrested. I can't change the age I was at the time that I first got my first arrest. And so when you look at the risk assessments that are used, many of them include those static factors, those things that you can never change. The other thing about using those static factors are there are um, influences um, that, that um, create the point that a person would get that you have no control over, right? So if I live in a community where um, the risk assessment measures how many contacts I've had with the police, and I live in a, a community that's over-policed, then my score is going to be impacted by that. I can't control that. Um, the experts talk about using things like dynamic factors. What are the things about me that I can control, right? I can control 
whether I got my GED while I was in prison. I should get a point for that. I can control whether I participated in programming. I can control um, the influence that I might have on others who are um, incarcerated with me. I can control my participation in self-help groups and education. Like those are things that should be captured in the risk assessment as opposed to things again about myself that I can never change. And so experts have been debating back and forth about this whole, uh, the use of risk assessment. And then if we're gonna use them, what should be included? You know, what I was going to say is it seems like you're making the case that we need to redo how we do the risk assessment rather than do away with it. So um, there are experts that, yes, talk about, um, first of all, many of the jurisdictions use a risk assessment that has been that has not been adopted for the population. And they start using these risk assessments and they just continue to use them over and over and over and over. There's no revalidation, which everyone, all of the experts talk about. If you use a risk assessment, it should be revalidated, reevaluated and revalidated after a certain time period, period, because there are changes that happen in the community. There are changes that happen with the population that the risk assessment is, is used on. And so, yes, um, there are experts that also talk about, yeah, we don't need to do away with it. We need to um, enhance the risk assessment tools that are already out there. Um, and I, I guess I come down in, in that boat too, because, you know, it seems like there needs to be some way to evaluate uh, if you release somebody, are they going to uh, be a threat to the community? Mm -hmm. And it also seems like there should be some way to evaluate that threat that's relatively objective. And I understand that any uh, measure is gonna have areas mm -hmm. of subjectivity, which I, uh, which I agree is problematic. Yeah. But, you know, it seems like, you know, from what I've read, at least, uh, a lot of this is, is heavily racially biased and uh, class biased mm -hmm. um, and, and put certain people at a huge disadvantage to getting out when they may actually not pose much of a risk. Uh, some of this comes back to the fact that, you know, these people are all risk averse and, uh, it, it, you know, if push comes to shove, they'd rather just keep somebody in because, uh, you know, it covers their rear end, right? Yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many hearings that I've done where the outcome is, and it's in writing, Um You've done very well. You've completed all the programming that we recommended, but we think you need more time. And this is for someone who has been in for decades, who has not had any institutional infractions, who has done everything that the parole board asked them to do. You know, you go up for a parole hearing, they say, uh, we're going to deny you parole, go back and do a certain program. 
the person has completed everything that the parole board has recommended. The only thing they could say this last time that we went up for a hearing is, we believe you need more time. Well, that, that to me is code for, we don't wanna take the risk. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, you know, and I've met people that are formerly incarcerated that have just done an amazing job of turning their life around and getting education and getting job training and finding a purpose in life. And, and you know, for me, those people are very low risk when they get out, uh, especially if they have a support network. Um, I also think that, you know, we create a lot of problems for people that are released that they don't have to have. Um, you know, I mean, some of the prohibitions against felony, uh, uh, you know, former, uh, former felons uh, getting released and getting jobs and getting, uh, you know, government assistance and all sorts of uh, housing and things like that. I mean, are we trying to make it so that they're going to commit another crime? Because it seems like we've created the system to keep them in. Yes, I, that is um, so critical. It, if, if someone were to look at our system and look at how we treat people who are returning to the community, you're absolutely right. It sounds like, it looks like we're setting up a permanent second class citizenry like a citizenry that we want to just kind of push aside and never give opportunities to. Um, and it's surprising and always refreshing when I see people who can navigate that system and be successful because it really is set up so that the opposite would happen. When you look at the conditions, first of all, that a person is is uh, required to abide by, how many of us could really abide by those conditions? Leaving your job twice a week to go and submit a urine test. Leaving your job, if you, if you get a job, right, to go and uh, meet with a parole officer. Um, st everybody starts off in DC twice a week, then you work your way down. Um, having to get a babysitter so that you can go and participate in a treatment program. Like when you think about the conditions, not leaving the jurisdiction with, um, without permission. Like I had a client who I write about who was getting his CDL license. He was just so excited to be able to get his CDL license. He had failed the test initially and then um, finally passed the test. He was so excited to call his parole officer and tell her, I passed my CDL license. My boss wants to send me on my first out-of-state trip to take a load to Virginia. This is somebody on supervision in Maryland, just going across the bridge to, to Virginia. And the first thing she said to him was, you cannot do it because you cannot leave the jurisdiction without permission. So first of all, the conditions that a person has to abide by are just very onerous. And then, as you said, um, just thinking about all of the collateral consequences. If your family is in public housing, you can't live in public housing and be on papers at the same time. Um, if you have or want to get an occupational or professional license, 
that's another hurdle that you have to overcome to, to get past the criminal background check. Um, all of the things that um, work against a person, yes, it, it appears that it's set up so that people will fail as opposed to succeed. Yeah, and you just reminded me, you know, watching like the Brian Banks story, um, one of uh, one of the interesting parts about him getting paroled was um, he was on GPS for a couple mm -hmm. of years. And basically every eight hours he had to uh, be home to plug in the unit. Yeah. Um, and then he was kind of tethered to the wall for yeah. like. Uh, an hour or two at a time while it recharged. I yes. mean, don't even think about that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie Blindsided, but um, but we saw uh, some of that also in that movie. Um, yes, and think about our clients who are in the community who are homeless, right? So they have to find a place to go and charge their device for yeah 30 minutes or how many however long it takes for the device to charge um and and you're right people don't think about those things you don't think about those things because you you know we just go along go on with our, our daily lives and we don't think about the way that these conditions are so restrictive to people who are on, who are subjected to them yeah and you know just another example um, my my wife uh, was a union organizer and was uh, flown, you know, 15 years ago uh, to Houston to uh, to unionize the janitors, and they end up uh, in the middle of the street, um, you know, uh, chained together, and they all got arrested, which um, mm -hmm. you know, in in Texas is kind of an interesting experience unto itself, mm -hmm. but. One of the interesting things she ended up, you know, uh, pleading to a misdemeanor, which we didn't think much of at the time, until three years later when we wanted to adopt a child. And all of a sudden we had to write to the uh, DOJ to get yeah. a waiver to be able yeah. to adopt a child. And that's just for a, a misdemeanor from one of the most innocuous offenses that you could ever imagine, uh, given that it involved her job. Right. Uh, and I can't even imagine, you know, what what people uh, who have uh, more serious records, um, you know, have to go through. Yes, yes, it's very um, very onerous. I have people who I've represented who are older gentlemen who are, you know, who talk about being scared of going on supervision. I am scared to go on supervision, not because I feel like I'm unprepared for the world, but because I know how challenging it will be to abide by these conditions. And I know that I have so many strikes against me, like the stigma of going into the world and having this scarlet letter on your back, returning citizen, it's it's very frightening. Um, and, and that gets me back to a point that we were talking about earlier, which is that 
most of the people that are uh, facing revocation uh, are not doing it because they committed new crimes. They're doing it for technical violations of their conditions of release. And why is that? I mean, I can understand why you would want to put somebody back into prison who committed a new crime, um, but somebody who committed a technical violation would seem to be more along the lines of a warning or changing the requirements or, or something. Why, yeah. are we, why are we putting people back in a cage for that? Well, it goes back to what you stated earlier, and that's that risk, um, you know, so, so folks are afraid to take a risk. And as the parole officers used to say to us all the time, you're not going to see my name in the paper. So um, just, just thinking about in D.C., at the D.C. jail on any given day, one third of the population at the DC jail are folks who are sitting there on technical violations. Not, not folks who are sitting there for uh, new crimes, but folks who are sitting there on, as parole violators. Um, and so what we see is there's also been a change in the mindset of the supervision officers, right? The folks who are, um, monitoring, um, and that's what they do. They surveil and monitor um, as opposed to provide uh, resources and support. They surveil and monitor. Um, the millions of people who are on uh, parole or supervised release or, and, and probation. Um, and so there was a time when individuals would enter this career to be a parole officer because they had social work background, they had the idea that they wanted to help people to support folks as they were getting on their feet. Much of that has changed, not just locally, but throughout the country. And so the mindset now is, is very akin to law enforcement. And you see in some jurisdictions, parole officers are carrying weapons and they come to your house and they do the uh, check-ins and they come with law enforcement. So what we've seen is a moving away from the social work aspect of um, this, this job, parole officer's job, to moving more towards law enforcement. And so that's why we see if you do something wrong, you're going to jail. Like that's the answer for everything. I'm gonna write this report I'm going to re request a warrant, even though the statute um, on the federal level says there are several actions that you can take. You can put the person in the halfway house. You can um, increase their reporting requirements. You can impose graduated sanctions. There are several other options for most paroling um, supervision agencies, the option they see is I'm going to write this, this warrant request and I'm going to send you back to jail. So it sounds like your view of the solution to this is to move back toward a more social worker model of uh, post-release supervision. Um, yes. Absolutely. 
Um, there are experts who've been writing about this for for um, a long time. You were right to say that it's not a uh, well um, sp often spoke spoken about uh, area of practice. But there are people who've been writing about parole supervision and what it should look like, and all agree that the supervision conditions should be narrowly tailored to achieve a certain goal, right? You shouldn't impose, impose this one size fits all conditions on everybody who walks out of jail. They should be narrowly tailored to achieve a certain goal. And once that goal is achieved, supervision should, should end. We don't need to over supervise people. Um, so yes, um, that is one area that um, would move us in the direction that we need to go in as opposed to continuing along this uh, path of just reincarcerating, reincarcerating, reincarcerating people. Yeah, and I think you bring up a, another good point here when you talk about narrowly tailored. Um, the case I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the reasons why the guy was facing re revocation is um, he called one of his old friends from, uh, from incarceration on the phone and talked to him. Um, and mm -hmm. it turned out unbeknownst to him that this guy was a gang member. Mm -hmm. um, and one of his conditions of release was no communication with gang members. But why does that make sense? This guy was uh, was arrested for drunk driving. Uh, yeah. he, he never had a gang uh, charge. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, um, the reason why he beat the case was that the judge ruled, hey, wait a second, this doesn't even make any sense. This shouldn't even be a condition of release. Um, and, and so, you know, the, you know, you see, like, I get it, like, you know, you get the guy who's convicted of molesting a child and one of his conditions is he doesn't get on the Internet. OK, yeah, right. that makes sense, right? Right. Or, or don't go around a school. I get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some of these are really yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And and you're you're so uh, right. You know, like the conditions that they just impose blanketly on everyone are. Um, in, in your words, ridiculous. Um, there is a condition that you not associate with other people who are on supervision. For some of our clients, what that means is I can't go back to my family home because there's someone else in the residence that's on supervision. And so we go to the shelter and we talk to folks about why are you in the shelter and we find that it's because, yes, yeah, someone else in my household is on supervision, so we can't associate. And um, of course, the shelter is half filled with people on supervision. Absolutely, because you because family members die while you're in prison. You're in prison for decades. Family members die. Family members move. I have to be supervised in the jurisdiction where I'm. I'm where the offense occurred. And so I can't just up and move with my family and go to Florida where they now live. I have to be supervised in Maryland or DC. And so I have to find some way to stay. So I wind up at the shelter. Yeah, and you have the same problem with like gang affiliation, uh, you know, with those uh, provisions that, that prevents a lot of people from returning 
to home where they have shelter, they have support, yes. they may have resources. And so, you know, some of these are ridiculous. Some of these are actually, they make sense, except when you start picturing what the actual reality of the world that they live in looks like. And so once you start looking at that, that doesn't make sense either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are some jurisdictions that are looking at the list of conditions that have been imposed, and they are thinking about what really matters and how can we cut the list down? I mean, there are some conditions that, yes, are should be imposed. Don't, don't commit any new crimes, right? Like, don't get a new conviction, right? Because an arrest alone can happen without you having any control over that. But don't get a new conviction. Um, make sure your parole officer knows how to reach you or, or where you are. Like, there are some conditions that should be imposed, but there are so many conditions that uh, really need to be uh, revised and, and the jurisdictions need to take a look at it. I, I look at the list of conditions that are imposed in the District of Columbia, and I always say the list gets longer every time I look at it. It's like up to 23 conditions now. Um, and and I, I think it, it's important for jurisdictions to take a, take a step back and think about do we really need to impose all of these conditions? Are we providing support to people as they are getting back on their feet or are these conditions serving as a hindrance? Yeah, and I think, you know, one suggestion I would have to those listening is if you want to get a sense for just how long these listed conditions are, watch a sentencing hearing where somebody's sentenced to probation, which has similar conditions yes. as parole. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Listen to just how long that judge will go on about all the conditions because they have to say it out loud. And sometimes you'll listen to the judge go on for 10 minutes just yes. listing all the conditions and all yes. the things. And you're like, how in the world is anyone going to remember all that to make sure that they abide by it all? Yeah. And how am I going to get my life back on track when I have to abide by all of these conditions? Yes. Yeah, that that's really, you know, my biggest problem. Well, maybe not my biggest problem, but one of my <laughs> biggest problems is that we make this system so that people that really do mean to get themselves back on track can't because yeah. they, they just fall short of these requirements. And, you know, I always get these people, oh, well, if you can't do the uh, time, don't do the crime. And right. I'm like, okay, but once they've done the crime, shouldn't they have a way to get their life back in order? Yes. So, so, so I've done the time and yes. Um, shouldn't I be given a opportunity to, to be successful in the community? Like how do I have to be punished for this offense for the rest of my life? Well, um, we're just about out of time. Any closing thoughts of things I haven't asked you that you're burning to say? Um, I, I would just urge folks to look at, uh, there's one uh, case that uh, recently came up, uh, the story of Gwen Levi. She's a 71-year-old woman uh, in the state of Maryland who was released and went to a computer program class. Her parole officer called her called her while she was in class. And because she did not answer the phone immediately, she wadded up back in prison. And 
Yeah, thankfully, because of public outcry and because of advocacy done by a lot of people, she um, was uh, released to the community. But, you know, you think about a 71-year-old grandmother going back to jail for something so minor. That's the society that we live in. That's the system that we have created. That was Alinda Moy faculty member at Howard and a longtime public defender. And we've been talking about the parole system and all of its problems. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.